My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jamie Neen. Canada may be a pretty big place in geographical terms, but the country's population and its role in the global economy are quite a bit more modest. Well, that's mostly true. One major exception to this is Canada's mining industry, which even after the purchase of some of the largest Canadian mining companies by corporations based elsewhere in the last 15 years, still accounts for something like 60-70% to of the total number of mining companies and the total number of mining projects in the world. Mining, of course, has a much greater impact on the world than simply adding to the bottom line of a company, an industry, or a country. It also frequently causes immense harm to ecosystems, to communities, and to human health. The people who live on the land where mining takes place, who not infrequently are that land's rightful indigenous owners and custodians as well, and who drink the water and breathe the air that are at risk of contamination, quite often object to the mining taking place at all or insist on greatly strengthened measures to reduce the risk. Yet this concern with life and well-being often point in very different directions than the drive for profit that motivates mining companies and the governments that support them. Again and again, all over the world, mining companies and governments run roughshod over local communities and their concerns, and proceed with mining projects that cause a great deal of harm to ecosystems and to people. Canadian mining companies have earned an awful reputation the world over for disrespecting human rights and the earth. In this context, a little less than two decades ago, two series of conversations converged. One was among large and small environmental groups and a couple of indigenous groups in the Canadian context about some recent struggles against mining projects in different parts of the country and the lack of infrastructure for preserving and sharing lessons, resources, and strategies from those struggles. The other was among international NGOs based in Canada and working primarily in the Americas, but also in Asia and West Africa, who regularly encountered communities with concerns about proposed or existing Canadian mining projects in their countries. These NGOs had little expertise in mining issues, but wanted to be able to support communities or at least point them towards resources. Out of these conversations, stakeholders from environmental, social justice, indigenous, and labor groups in Canada came together to form a new organization, Mining Watch Canada. For the last 18 years, Mining Watch Canada has worked with both indigenous and non-indigenous communities to, quote, address the urgent need for a coordinated public interest response to the threats to public health, water and air quality, fish and wildlife habitat, and community interests posed by irresponsible mineral policies and practices in Canada and around the world, end quote. This has involved working with communities fighting to prevent, mitigate, or remediate specific mining projects, particularly in helping them acquire resources and information and build relationships with other communities engaged in similar struggles. It has involved doing research in a whole host of mining-related areas in a way that centers the well-being of communities. And it has involved working for changes to laws, regulations, and policies that govern mining practices and that shape what companies can get away with. 
Jamie Neen has been with Mining Watch Canada from the beginning, and currently he is their communications coordinator. He speaks with me about the Canadian mining industry, its impacts on the world, and the work of Mining Watch Canada. We spoke by Skype to phone from Ottawa. My name is Jamie Neen. I'm the communications coordinator with Mining Watch Canada based in Ottawa. I've been here and Mining Watch has been here for 18 years now, and we work in Canada and internationally, wherever the Canadian mining industry and the Canadian government is promoting mining. So we've got a fairly broad mandate. We do limit it to hard rock mining, so metal mining and so on, not trying to deal with gravel and sand and coal and tar sands and what have you. I started off working on peace and social justice activism more broadly and you know, in Canada, that led me fairly directly to working with First Nations, and I spent a couple of years working in northern Saskatchewan with the Hatchet Lake Dene Nation, dealing with the uranium mining that's in their territory and dealing with the environmental and social and economic impacts of the mining that's happening right in their backyard. Indigenous people in Canada are, are the front line of environmental and social justice impacts, and I felt I wanted to make a difference, and that was really the place that it seemed most needed. So building on that, I still do a lot of work with Indigenous communities, and as Mining Watch, we do a lot of work in support of Indigenous peoples in Canada and globally, as well as you know mine workers and non-Indigenous communities that are affected by mining. It has really massive direct impacts on the land and the water and the people that depend directly on the land and the water for their livelihoods. But at the same time, a lot of the time, it's really far removed from the urban settings where most people live and where most political decisions are based. You know, so the political decisions, the decisions that tell us how the economy is going to run and what our priorities are, are made from the side of the people that benefit from mining, which we all do. But they're really far removed from the impact. Obviously, there's some overlap, but really, it's the fact that it's so incredibly devastating and significant for people at one level, but then, you know, for the rest of the population, it's really out of sight, out of mind. Give listeners a sense of the scale of what we're talking about when we refer to the Canadian mining industry. I mean, it's shifted to some extent in the last 10 or 15 years because some of the Canadian giants like Inco and Falcon Bridge have been bought out in Alcan. They're now part of other global conglomerates, and they're not actually run from Canada anymore. But there's still lots of Canadian mining companies, like a couple thousand of them, and they still make up 60 or 70 percent, depending on how you count it, of the global mining activity. In terms of the number of mining companies, in terms of the number of mining projects and so on, Canada is really the dominant force worldwide. And there's sort of this image that Canadians like to have that we're friendly and respectful of people. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. And in the mining industry, it seems often that we're not terribly respectful of people and we're not respectful of their priorities or even their environment or or even their human rights. Those are the things that come back to us. And of course, the Canadian government is deeply involved in this, promoting the Canadian mining industry. And that's part of what we're up against in many parts of the world as well. Tell me about the founding of Mining Watch. It really came together out of two different conversations, and one was a conversation that was happening nationally through the Canadian Environmental Network and a number of environmental groups, national groups and smaller local groups, 
including some indigenous peoples, the Inu Nation was one, who were trying to figure out how to bring some kind of consistency and continuity to mining issues across Canada. And there'd been a number of regional struggles around big mining projects that were really contentious for one reason or another. Different organizations had taken on those battles, and there wasn't any real way of sharing that experience and building on it, and there was no central access to information and any way of learning, really, how to deal with these issues. And everybody was having to learn the same thing over and over again, and that was really kind of self-defeating. And at the same time, there was a discussion going on among international NGOs, you know, Canadian organizations working internationally, especially in the Americas, but also in places like the Philippines and West Africa, where Canadian NGOs working with local groups in those countries were getting more and more requests for help dealing with Canadian mining companies that were coming into those areas. People coming in saying, well, this Canadian mining company wants to do this and this, and we don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea. Are they telling the truth? How do we even deal with this? And of course, those Canadian organizations didn't have any experience with this. So they needed information and they needed some analysis and they needed to be able to respond and started working together to make that happen. So that became sort of the international impetus for Mining Watch. And those things came together and we said, well, we're dealing with the same industry. It's the Canadian mining industry in Canada and internationally. And all of those experiences and all that information and learning really needs to be shared globally. So we tried to figure out how to set that up, and that's what we've been working to do. It was a question of trying to work out the agenda, like what is it we actually want to do, and describing that. But we also had to do that in a way that would allow foundations to come in and say, yeah, this is something we can support. And then to institutionalize that, you know, we have to come up with a governance structure, a board of directors, a membership, and figure out how all of that's going to work to make an organization that is accountable, that's functional, and can actually do what we want it to do. It was a fairly long process. I think it probably took a couple of years, and really there were a couple of people that spearheaded the whole negotiation with a couple of major funders to make sure that they were satisfied with the accountability and the governance structures and so on, and their money wasn't going to be disappeared for no good reason, that they would actually get some work out of it. And from the perspective of the organizations that would become members of Mining Watch and the communities and people that were represented, that it was actually going to be effective. So, yeah, there was quite a lot of work and reworking of things to come up with how that was all going to work. And it was successful. And part of that was making sure that we had enough of a commitment. It was actually the Gordon Foundation that pitched in in that initial period and an NGO called Interpares based here in Ottawa that really committed to getting it going and to a three-year funding commitment so that we could say, yes, we're going to make a go of this. And at the end of three years, we may or may not be able to keep going, but that at least gives us enough time to make a real honest attempt at it. We kind of looked around the table at all the people who'd come into the conversation. There were like a dozen different groups that were involved at that point. It was a real variety from local to national to international organizations. And it included trade unions, it included indigenous peoples, it included environmental and social justice groups. So it was a real broad spectrum. And so we said, well, if this is the constituency, these should be the members. And there are probably lots of other people that want to be members and be part of this organization. So it kind of looks like a coalition. But we also realized that it can't run like a coalition if it's going to be its own organization. 
the board of directors can't just represent the members directly or you end up with people voting according to their particular interests. And, and we really wanted to make sure that the organization was able to act on its own and develop its own agenda and its own priorities based on the interests of the members and based on their priorities, but also able to go beyond that. And so the board of directors was set up as individuals. So many of them come from member organizations, but they're not there representing their organizations. They're there based on their expertise, based on their commitment and their knowledge. So they're able to work together and they make decisions by consensus. They're elected by the membership. So there is accountability there. But it's not based on voting in what's sometimes called coalition gridlock, where you end up really stuck with the lowest common denominator of actions that everyone can agree on and an organization that wouldn't be able to make its own decisions, essentially. Give listeners an overview of the core activities of Mining Watch. We really focus a lot on that idea of exchange of information, exchange of knowledge and learning. And what we're trying to do overall is recognizing the kinds of impacts and the damage that mining can do to limit that, to support people who are trying to confront the impacts of mining, whether it's the early stages or abandoned mines or whatever it is, but also to change the ground rules and recognizing that there are laws and regulations and institutions that support mining that allow abuses to continue and facilitate them and support them, actually. And we need to change that. And at the same time, the only way that's going to change in any long-term meaningful way is if that change comes from the grassroots, from the communities. And it's kind of a practical thing as well that politicians tend to listen to people's stories directly. They appreciate analysis and information, which we also provide. We do a lot of research and publish reports and so on. But if they're exposed to the human dimension of it, they respond much more directly. You know, so that's a practical way of making political change as well as to say, look, here are people who are actually affected by your decisions. This is what happens. So it's a two-way street in terms of trying to change those policies and protect people legally and so on at one level, but at the same time, build networks of solidarity and support so that those community people are not isolated, so that they have access to information. They also have access to other people's experience and support when it's needed. Give a more detailed example of an instance where Mining Watch has been involved in supporting a community in its struggles around a specific mining project. There was a Canadian mining company went in in mid-2000s and wanted to start building a gold mine in northern El Salvador. People there were kind of concerned about this. There's been some gold mining in El Salvador over the years, and it's been a bit of a disaster. So they were kind of concerned about this, and the company was saying, oh, no, don't worry about that. We know what we're doing. We won't make a mess, and so on. And they said, well, let's check it out. By then, there were already networks and communication between communities in Central America and Latin America with experience with mining and with Canadian mining companies even. So they were able to go to Honduras and Guatemala and see Canadian mines in operation. And they didn't really like what they saw. They saw that the mines were being pushed in against the wishes of the local farming and indigenous communities. They saw that the water supplies were being poisoned and contaminated and so on. And they went back and they said, okay, we need to organize around this. And, you know, they had support from us. They had the opportunity to network regionally. 
And they were able to get support from other organizations like Oxfam America, for example, was supportive. And they were able to convince the Salvadoran government that you know, this is a small country and 70% of El Salvador is dependent on the one watershed. And so contaminating that river would destroy the water supply for most of the country. And it's a country that's already suffering from massive deforestation and water stress. And so it kind of made sense, I guess, from the government's perspective to stop mining. But the mining company decided to use political pressure rather than go through the proper channels to get their mining permits. So they never actually fulfilled all the requirements for their permits, and they just thought they could pressure the government and get those permits. And it didn't work. So this is where the story really starts getting interesting, because the company then went to the international tribunals. They started using the free trade agreement, in this case between the U.S. and El Salvador, as part of the Central America Free Trade Agreement. So they sued the government of El Salvador for about $250 million. And so we ended up with a really sizable coalition of allied groups in the U.S., in El Salvador, in Canada, who are all participating in this and pressuring this tribunal in Washington to uphold the decision of the government of El Salvador, which was, again, responding to the communities and the situation there. It became a major campaign, and ultimately the tribunal rejected the company's claims and said, no, the government of El Salvador can act like a government and make decisions. So now we're faced with persuading this company to pay the court costs that the tribunal said they owed the government of El Salvador for having gone through all of this and actually shut down their promotional operations, which they're continuing in El Salvador and which are continuing to create conflict. They're still paying people to promote mining in communities that have already decided they don't want mining. And during all of this, four people were killed, and there's a lot of intimidation and violence that's already come out of it, and we want that to stop. Like I say, there's a broad spectrum of groups in El Salvador, local development groups and groups in the States and and Canada that have come together. And at the same time, we're able to use this and look at Canada's involvement more broadly with free trade and investment agreements that Canada is promoting all over the world, precisely with the same kind of investment arbitration system that was used against El Salvador and which is used against all kinds of countries that Canadian mining companies are having problems with. There's now three cases in Colombia alone that we know of. What we're trying to do is bring all of that back to the Canadian public and say, you know, there's a problem and we're going to replicate this with the CETA, with Europe, with the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, you know, looks like it's toast. But that same mechanism is there and we're creating problems for ourselves and we're creating problems for people around the world and we need to stop. We're able to do that all based on the same case and the same campaign. And within that overall picture, what roles would Mining Watch play? There's a couple different things that we can contribute. One is the experience and the access to information. We've collected a lot of information now, and we can tell you how this works in different situations. And that goes along with the kind of networking to say, okay, we can learn from different experiences, community to community and organization to organization. You can say, people who've dealt with this issue, how did that work? What worked? What didn't work? What can we learn from each other about this? And that really helps people figure out their strategies and so on. But with that experience, we can also put in our own ideas and say, you know, we've learned from experience a few things and we can provide strategic advice and we can help build relationships and that kind of thing. We are often involved in large and small coalitions like that. And part of it is just that none of our organizations are that big. 
we're five people and most of the groups that we work with are volunteer groups or community groups or smaller organizations. And so the only way we can really have an impact is working together. What kinds of research does Mining Watch do? We've done research in a number of different areas. It might be on environmental impacts of a particular technology. We've done studies on fisheries protection and everything from environment to economics, like looking at where mining subsidies and mining taxes are applied and how they work and so on. And and that's really helped build some awareness among our partner organizations and the public to some extent as well that, you know, the mining industry always talks about how much it contributes to the GDP or to the tax base. And they don't count how much they're subsidized with everything from cheap electricity to roads to tax holidays. So they may be paying a certain amount in taxes, but they're actually getting a lot more back than they're paying in in many cases. So we've got all of that kind of documentation that really helps inform those debates. Part of what we're trying to do, though, is also develop methodology and share that. So we're looking at things like corporate research, where you go in and look at the documents that the companies file with the stock exchanges and the regulators and say, how can we figure out what they're actually doing? So we've done a fair bit of that, but what we're trying to do is develop the methodology that we can really share that. We've got a sizable project going on to do this mostly in Latin America right now and bring people from all over the place to workshop these techniques and this methodology and really trying to spread that capacity. And that's the kind of approach that we'd like to take with a lot of things. Tell me more about some of the mining-related policy work that Mining Watch has done. One that we're in the middle of right now is the environmental assessment review that the federal government kicked off last year. They appointed an expert panel, so we'll have more work to do looking at what the expert panel says and what kind of recommendations are going to come out of that. But that comes out of years of work on environmental assessment and on individual project assessments, but also on environmental assessment policy, saying, you know, if we think this is a way of trying to avoid conflicts in land use and planning and for development to really respond to community needs and to local environmental conditions and so on, then, you know, there needs to be public participation. There needs to be good science behind it. It needs to be really objective and not politicized. And of course, you know, under Stephen Harper, all that kind of went out the window. And the Liberals came in saying, we're going to fix that. We've noticed that there's a problem and major projects like mines and pipelines are being held up because nobody can agree on what's supposed to happen. So we've been working on this, God, for decades, really. I mean, really since we started on the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, but also on provincial environmental assessment processes trying to get them fixed up. And now we've got an opportunity possibly to have a really huge rewrite of the federal law, which Harper basically gutted. So all of last year, we were really up to our elbows with working with groups across the country, environmental and indigenous groups, to build an agenda for meaningful environmental assessment. We got a bunch of recommendations. And like I say, we'll see what the expert panel has to say about it. And then we'll see how the government responds because the government's going to have to tip its hand at some point about what kind of new law they're thinking about. We've been going back and forth between the technical conversations with environmental lawyers and with government agencies and so on about how these things work and how they should work and how they can work. 
and going to the public and saying, people need to weigh in on this and go to those expert panel hearings and tell them what your experience is and what needs to happen, because that's what's going to make them really move ahead on it. That's one thing that we're in the middle of right now. And there's lots of other examples, right, from the United Nations level, where we're working with other groups on the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And then, like I say, at the national provincial level here as well. What are some of the key things that Mining Watch has learned over the years about working respectfully and effectively with Indigenous communities? The first thing is always to listen. And our staff is all non-Indigenous, but half of our board is Indigenous. So those are the people that we go to for direction and accountability. But yeah, the first thing is not to assume that you know what is going on until you've listened to people and had a chance to figure it out. And it's always complicated. I think that's the other important thing is not to assume that there's an easy answer or that anything's really straightforward because, you know, when you're dealing with other organizations, when you're dealing with communities, there's always complexities. And essentially, I think what we have to do is not try and dissect that complexity, but just to understand and respect it and say, okay, we deal with this community. And sometimes if there's too much internal conflict and people are too divided, there may be no way that we can work with them. And we also have to have our own ethics and our own direction so that we can say to people, we're working with this group, not because they're doing what we like, but because they're doing things in a way that we feel is honest and accountable. So, you know, it's delicate and it's not easy, but I think if you're both careful and respectful and committed, then it can work. What does Mining Watch Canada have coming up in the next little while? We're part of this campaign to get an ombudsman installed federally so that there's some place for people who've been hurt by Canadian mining companies to come and complain. We'd much rather see some kind of legal restriction on what mining companies can do so maybe there's actually a law against going abroad and burning people's houses or shooting them to get them out of the way or bulldozing them out of the way of your mine. We're not quite there yet, but I think that's where we'd like to be to say, if you're going to be a Canadian mining company, then some laws will apply to your activities internationally, not just in Canada. Canada has agreements in place around human rights and environmental protection and so on internationally, but they're not enforced. The one law that we do have, which is against corruption, is barely enforced either. Cases that we've been working on to try and get that working, and it (laughs) it hasn't been working. And I think we're going to see a lot more work with Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities putting their priorities for development ahead of the needs of transnational corporations. You have been listening to my interview with Jamie Neen of Mining Watch Canada. To learn more about their work, go to miningwatch.ca. That's miningwatch.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 